Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is my good friend, Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner who is the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. He, along with his colleagues, Dan Pat and Tim Walton, are the authors of a new study commissioned by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency uh, for its series on mosaic warfare, advancing decision-centric warfare, gaining advantage through force design and mission integration. Brian, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, an, an absolute pleasure. I've heard about this report for a long time. You've joined us to discuss this report, and I'm glad now uh, the report <laughs> is coming out. Uh, it'll be formally out next week, but you guys have started uh, talking to a, about it a little bit and right. also in uh, on uh, Defense One uh, in a commentary piece you and Dan uh, wrote. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Uh, so before we get to the report, right, first refresh our audience on the notion of what mosaic warfare is, uh, because it is a new uh, enabling uh, approach and concept uh, that actually, if implemented, would allow the, the, the Pentagon to make the kind of choices that folks want to make, but explain to the audience what mosaic warfare is. Sure. Thanks, Vago. So uh, mosaic warfare is a, a warfighting approach based on maneuver warfare um, that combines a new disaggregated or distributed force design with a command and control process uh, that uses human command and machine control to be able to create a force that's more adaptable, uh, more flexible, and thereby imposes more complexity on, and uncertainty on your opponent. So for example, um, as the, the Navy and the Army move towards these more distributed force structures uh, where you've got larger number of smaller units uh, and a smaller number of larger units, um, that kind of force uh, you could mix and match in a lot of new ways compared to the current force, which is a smaller number of really large multi-mission platforms. Well, you can mix and match those uh, forces, create new force compositions uh, that would be in some cases unpredictable to an adversary. So the Chinese may not have already gamed out what they would do against that new force composition. Um, and then to manage the, that process of composing forces uh, and then uh, thinking ahead to the next courses of action you want to do with those forces, uh, you would use a combination of human command and machine control. And so not unlike the Uber app uh, or the Google Waze app or the Google Maps app, um, where it comes up with a plan for you to accomplish your objective, make it to your destination, these machine control systems, some of which are already in the field and the fleet, would help you build a course of action and a force composition to uh, accomplish tasks that the commander has set forth. So Mosaic Warfare combines this force design idea with this new command and control approach to try to make a force that's more adaptable uh, and can create more complexity for an opponent and thereby get a decision-making advantage. Um, and one last thing is, so in terms of the OODA loop, which we often talk about, the Air Force often talks about, um, Mosaic Warfare would be both trying to improve our own OODA loop by using the human command and machine control system to speed up our own decision-making and improve it, uh, but at the same time, degrade the opponent's decision-making. We often forget that you know, the OODA loop is a competition, so I don't have to run faster if I can make the other guy run slower. So part of it is destroying his ability to orient because we've got these new novel force compositions or new novel con ops that we're able to deploy uh, given this force is, is, is more adaptable than the predecessor that we have today. 
Um, so talk to me a little bit about the 52-page report you guys uh, put together. Obviously, uh, DARPA was uh, the sponsor of it. Walk us through the key takeaways. Yeah, so we um, this is the third report we've done on Mosaic Warfare, and it will be the last of this series. Uh, the first report was the overview uh, that we did at CSBA. The first uh, report we did at Hudson focused on the command and control process and the technical requirements for that command and control system. Uh, and then this last one is on force design and how uh, the design of U.S. military forces, uh, even with the budget uh constraints that we find ourselves under today is becoming what we would say is more heterogeneous uh, than the force that we have now. So the force of the future, even within these constrained budgetary uh, situations, are, is going to have a larger number of different elements in it and a larger number of smaller elements, uh, including unmanned systems compared to today. So that's one big takeaway is force design is changing. Um, whether we like it or not. I mean, this, this trend is happening inexorably within the military. It's similar to a trend you see in the commercial world or in the civilian world, where we see uh, people getting much more bespoke solutions that are tailored to them, thanks to uh, things like internet marketing and, and the ability to create products that are very tailored or, or specialized for your particular situation. Um, this trend is happening in the military as well. Um, so this force design change uh, is going to offer the potential to uh, actually have force compositions that are very different than the standard force packages of today. Um, one of the challenges then we have is, well, how do we make that happen? Because today, uh, military services uh, prepare forces for deployment, send them out in their force packages like carrier strike groups, brigade combat teams, uh, air expeditionary squadrons. Um, and then the COCOM gets those and has to figure out how to you know, adapt them to the missions they actually have at hand, like uh, sustaining air operations from Kadena or defense of Guam or anti-submarine warfare in the GIUK gap. Um, the COCOM then is responsible for doing that, but the COCOM doesn't have the capabilities to do it. So that gets the big second part of the report, which is about mission integration. How do we enable COCOMs to be able to integrate the forces they're receiving from the services, and in some cases have to recompose them in new ways to deal with the mission or the operational challenges they're facing? Uh, because you see today, um, like in the defense of Guam case, uh, Indo-PACOM has asked for a whole set of new capabilities and it's part of the Pacific Deterrence Initiative to support defense of Guam. Well, the question might be, well, why isn't that already being delivered to them? Um, and part of the reason it's not being delivered is because no one service is responsible for defense of Guam. No, Indo-PACOM is. So the services all provide the forces they're used to delivering, you know, carrier strike groups, air expeditionary squadrons, um, maybe a, uh, a, a Patriot uh, battery. Uh, and then Indo-PACOM has to figure out how to pull it all together. That integration process is something they're not well equipped to do. Uh, and it's a huge missing element of our ability to compete with a peer competitor. Um, against regional competitors like uh, the, the Iranians, uh, or rather the, the Iraqis, and then potentially the Iranians, um, we might be able to do it as we have today, where you send all your forces out in this pre-set set of force packages, and then we just kind of use deconfliction and coordinate on the fly, and they can get the job done. Uh, but up against the China, you're going to need to have a lot more synergy between your forces, and they're going to need to be synchronized to a level that they can't just, it's not a pickup game anymore. They're going to have to integrate right. in the field. So that's something we're going to have to do in the future. Uh, you know, one of the one of the uh, lines you guys have, which is too good of a line, and I'm surprised you didn't uh, use it, was uh, that it, it's not about putting the cocoms on a diet, but rather changing what the services are feeding them. Uh, right? Yeah. I mean, that's to, that's to the point of of what they're providing. What's the way to get to those better trade offs? Right? Because ultimately, the discussion now too often is focusing on the more money, right? You know, everybody has their unfunded priorities list, nothing can be traded off. And actually, 
you you can make trade-offs um, and you, right. you can make even more profound trade-offs than the ones we're making because arguably, as you and I have discussed on this program and many others have, we're, we're not making the right kinds of trade-offs. We are spending money, but not all capability. And I, and I want to get to this hybrid gray uh, right. zone warfare, w- which is very, very different. So great powers are, are actually employing tactics uh, that, that smaller powers would normally right. uh, 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 apply. So how is it? How, how do we need to change what the services are feeding the COCOMs to try to get that coordinated answer right. and not force the COCOM to do the coordination that, is, that should actually have been done for them uh, ultimately in the decisions that we make? Yeah, so I think there's two elements to that. So one is um, what we're seeing right now on the part of the gray zone operations from China and Russia is that they're they're returning back to maneuver warfare. You know, gray zone warfare is arguably arguably a form of maneuver warfare where you create dilemmas for your opponent. Um, in this case, they're creating dilemmas for us because we don't have anything to operate at that level of escalation effectively. Um, and then uh, our best way to counter it is to use maneuver warfare in response. You know, our kind of attrition-focused approach from the Cold War or from even OIF or OEF isn't really going to be adaptable to this situation. So mosaic warfare with this more adaptable force in theory should be able to give us a lot more tools at that lower level of escalation because we can mix and match the forces um, to be able to uh, accomplish things without the at a proportional level without having to, to bring it up to the level of a carrier strike group. We can have two LCS and a, and a UAV get pulled together to do that job that, that maybe a, a, we could only use a carrier strike group to do before. So th- that's one thing on the gray zone is this approach to warfare is intended to give us those tools at the, at the gray zone or at least lower levels of escalation. And then the challenge is, as you said, is, you know, that today the services send out the stuff they send out because it's, it's, they're looking to be efficient. You know, they're just, an, it's an industrial process for them of creating ready forces. So they don't want to have to create multiple different menu items uh, that they have delivered to the COCOMs because that's just more money and time and complexity for their training and preparation pipeline. Um, so that industrial uh, force generation process, um, they don't want to have it become more bespoke than it already is. So the question then is, well, do we make the then do that and create more force package options or do we instead make it easier for those force packages they do send to get broken up and reformed into new ways by the COCOM because the COCOM is dealing with the situations that they they have as they change. Um, And we would argue in the report that we need to have the COCOMs more empowered to do more of this recomposition rather than trying to make the services come up with a lot more menu items. So, um, you know, in terms of what they're feeding them, maybe what what they're feeding them can change a little bit to become a better menu or a bigger menu. But on the other end, the COCOMs need to have a better ability to take what they're fed and readapt it to the situations they're faced with. Uh, and today they have no mechanisms and processes to do that. Um, and the PDI, uh, we argue, the, Indo- the Pacific Deterrence Initiative and Indo-PACOM's request for it is an example or a symptom of that problem because everything they asked for was the kinds of enablers that you would need to be able to recompose and integrate forces in theater for specific missions. Um, although there are some, right, who uh, are both serving or have served who are actually pretty happy with it, right? I mean, their criticism was the administration didn't really sell it properly, but almost every single thing you would have wanted as a, as a, as a PACOM, it was eventually delivered, right, from the submarines uh, to the LRASMs uh, to some of the other capabilities. It, it was, wow, this budget, you know, Oilers, uh, you know, had the right elements in it, uh, even though you, you, you could complain about it you know, being unintegrated at the end of the day, right? Forcing a Phil Davidson or a Lung Aquilino to be the ones who actually serve as the the, the integrating function. Um, well, yeah, so let little... me push back on that a little bit, though, because yeah, I'll, I'll say that, so there, so 
I'm happy and they're happy with the, the force structure that's being delivered. But if you look at the PDI request that uh, the, the assessment that, that Indopaycom did, you know, that's only one bucket. You know, there were four buckets. One bucket was lethality. And there were some things in there that they wanted that they got. So more submarines, um, some more missile defenses. Um, but there were some elements of the lethality bucket that didn't get addressed, like the defense of Guam was not fully addressed. Um, but then the other three buckets about force design and posture, about training and readiness, about better cooperation with allies, that integration function, that was a lot of that was left on the table, you know, so that the, the uh, administration didn't really come across with a lot of those investments um, and focus mostly on force structure, a lot of which was already going to be in the plan, regardless of Indopaycom asking for it or not. We are talking about the importance of making trade-offs. Uh, there's a sense from the administration that the 2023 budget will make real trade-offs. How do we need to think about the kind of trade-offs we need and how does a mosaic approach help you make those better choices? Yeah, good, good, good point. And so the, um, I mean, what I've heard internal to the administration is they're looking at a budget reduction in the next year. So 2023 could be a, you know, single digit percent reduction in the defense budget. Um, and which, you know, given the challenges they had with this year, which was actually a slight rise, that's going to be significant. And the question then is, do we need to have a new defense strategy? Well, we definitely need a new defense strategy if we're going to move away from uh, the force structure requirements that um, were based on the last one, where we were going to do denial, deterrence by denial. If instead we're going to be focusing on maybe something more uh, sophisticated, more nuanced, like deterrence by creating uncertainty for an opponent, which is the impression I'm getting from both this budget and from the administration's characterization of it, um, that, that approach is pretty consistent with this idea of mosaic warfare. I mean, we're talking about an approach to warfare where you use uncertainty, complexity that you impose on an opponent to try to deter or dissuade them from an act of aggression. So if we think about this mosaic approach and what it might mean for trade-offs, it means that you could take a force that was more rebalanced towards smaller pieces of force structure that had lower procurement and ONS costs. Uh, and by recomposing those and managing their recomposition dynamically in the field uh, with the COCOM and the component commanders, you might be able to create that more uncertain picture for an opponent and create that complexity that deters them from uh, an act of aggression. So this could be a, a means by which you mitigate the impact of the reduction in your force structure. So if you lose that ability to really fight it out and, and do an attrition-based deterrence by now, the fallback might be this, where we, we use a combination of uh, you know, human command and machine control, uh, mission integration in the field by the COCOMs and, and their staffs, um, and a force that's more recomposable because it's got more elements that are smaller that need to be aggregated into new force packages to deal with the challenges that you face uh, on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in the COCOM. So you are all about making hard choices, right? Uh, ultimately, what are the capabilities uh, that the nation needs in the face of other uh, uh, great, uh, great uh, powers? From, from your standpoint, at the conclusion of, these, of three of these mosaic studies now, where do we need to put the investment? Where does the money have to go? Right. And where can we take greater risk? Yeah, so um, from, like we did in the Navy study we did last year, we did this looking at the fleet, but applying it more broadly. Um, the pieces of force structure that we could probably take reductions in are those that um, are less adaptable and less, less able to um, be recomposed into new, into new force structure elements. So things like large surface combatants, destroyers and cruisers, that's an area where maybe we can take risk. I know that there's a lot of people who push back on that idea because there's a lot of missile cells associated with those. Um, but 
uh, you know, those, those platforms, you know, put a lot of eggs in one basket. Um, and the Chinese have enough weapons at this point to where they can launch anti-ship ballistic missiles at destroyers and not have a big opportunity cost as a result. So if we, you know, continue to hold on that as being the, the major element of our force structure for delivering fires, um, that's, that's a bad idea. So by distributing that more, even if it means lower number of missiles overall, we're probably better off. So um, large surface combats would be an area. I would say aircraft carriers, as we saw in the previous study, are probably not a great area to take a lot of risk because they are one of our more adaptable pieces of force structure. I can change that carrier air wing. I can move the carrier around. It gives me a level of flexibility and adaptability for force packages that um, a, an airbase um, and a, you know, uh, uh, a set of airplanes on an airbase maybe don't get lobby to do nearly as much. Um, uh, I would also say that we found that um, uh, in the Air Force, uh, you know, big bombers are still a big element of the force that we would need because they're highly recomposable. They can operate in concert with a lot of different platforms, but uh, individual strike fighters are not nearly as recomposable because you can't, they don't have as much payload. You can't change their payloads. They don't have the same ability to operate in concert with other platforms and new force packages. Um, so you end up with this situation where basically platforms that can carry other platforms or platforms that have at least the staffing and, and you know, command and control systems to allow them to act as a field commander and organize a force package on the fly. Those are good pieces of force structure, bombers, aircraft carriers, uh, big, large amphibs in a lot of ways. Um, but it's in that middle that we end up with forces, force package, force structure elements that are not that useful in this new way of fighting because they're expensive, uh, put a lot of eggs in one basket, but they're not recomposable in the same way as a smaller ship or a smaller airplane would be like an X, X-58 uh, Valkyrie or, a, or an FFG. Um, and what does that mean for a program like the F-35, uh, right? right. At, at, at the end of the day, we, we talked to uh, Lieutenant General Fick uh, recently, the program executive officer, and the point he made was, look, we're developing a highly capable airplane. It is delivering. It is getting cheaper. Its cost per flying hour is being reduced, um, you know, and, and made clear that everybody in this understands that these are not apples to apples comparisons when you compare it, for example, to F-16 cost. It, it was never supposed oh, to yeah. be as cheap as flying an F-16. Right. Right. Um, and that NGAD and the Navy's future fighter don't perform the strike roles that this airplane would play, right? I mean, those are air dominance. Those are air superiority right. aircraft, uh, long-range fleet interceptors, if you will, as opposed to, you know, how, what does what, what, what you're suggesting mean for an F-35 program yeah. that is I, still a national priority and an international right. priority, it, in fact? It's a great question because um, we found in the wargaming that we've done and in the analysis we've done for, for this type of approach to warfare, this more decision-centric approach to warfare, um, the F-35 is actually useful. It's just the number you need maybe isn't as high as that we've originally predicted uh, because the F-35 becomes more of this command and control uh, uh, for four structure node, right? So it's a C4ISR platform primarily, and then secondarily, it's actually delivering effects on its own because it's got this fantastic ability to fuse data from itself as well as inorganic sensors. It can be, it's stealthy enough to be able to act forward like the B2 would. Um, so you can send it forward with your force package and act as that node. Um, so it does a lot of those functions that in mosaic warfare are absolutely essential. I need something that can go out with my force package, uh, recompose it if necessary, and reallocate the missions and roles to the different like unmanned systems that are operating with it. Uh, and needs to be able to operate inside the threat environment because you're not going to be able to communicate with it once that package leaves, right? So the, the idea in these contested environments is you need these, these nodes. 
Um, that, but that also means that an F-16, F-15, you know, maybe is not uh, a terrific platform for that future environment. It becomes more of a truck. And then, well, how many trucks do I need at a certain point? So the, so I think that's, that's what we're finding is that you've got to have this role as a, either a carrier of other smaller things, uh, or you've got to have this command and control node role um, to be a valuable band asset in the um, operational environment that it seems like we're moving toward. I mean, this all seems like the, the structure that the, the department is is trying to trend towards given the, the budget constraints. Um, and I think the NDS will probably bear that out with a focus on creating uncertainty and complexity rather than focusing on straight up denial. Um, I, I added a question on gray zone uh, because you and I end up talking about yeah. it a lot, but it also I was reminded to, to ask the question because of what happened or maybe didn't happen with HMS Defender, right. uh, the Type 45 uh, Royal Navy yeah. destroyer that's in the Black Sea. It's part of the uh, Queen Elizabeth Battle Group, uh, an extraordinary uh, multinational formation uh, that includes uh, U.S. Marine Corps uh, F-35s. Uh, and certainly, I think it is the largest ever F-35 uh, deployment. Yes. Uh, to date, uh, and and really on on a ship that I think is is a game changing ship that the United States, uh, I, you and I have talked about this a lot right. privately as well as on the record. It, it, you know, we should really study that ship for its ability to deliver an yes. enormous amount of capability for uh, for the price. But let me take you to the notion of gray zone warfare. Right, that obviously the rush the, there was a Russian report that they opened fire on the ship. Uh, that it had penetrated Russian uh, sea space. Uh, the Brits say nothing of the sort. There was a live fire exercise going on nearby us, and and we stayed uh, firmly in international waters. Since the Royal Navy are some of the world's finest navigators, I'm going to go with them uh, in 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 terms of 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 that. Uh, but the broader question is. This is a new kind of aggressiveness and uh, right, a little reminiscent of the Cold right. War, right? I mean, we have a tendency of forgetting that at a time when you were in the business, uh, you know, it, it was, um, you know, shots were being exchanged on a regular basis in right. one form or another uh, or messaging being sent. Right. But warfare also appears to be changing in the confluence of cyber and a whole bunch of other things. Are we fully adapting are, are we preparing for warfare as we envision it, as opposed to how it is our adversaries are going to fight? Right. Because our adversaries yeah. appear to be interested in fighting very differently how compared with right. how it is we're planning on fighting them, which, right. which is problematic, right? Right. And this is something we we're, this is something actually we're, we're researching right now and that, we, that I wrote an op-ed on uh, last year, I guess, uh, looking at different scenarios. The fact that the scenarios we use for planning in the Defense Department today are not really the appropriate ones because they're going after a type of warfare we wanted to pursue that was more re reflective of OIF and OEF or even um, you know the kinds of fights we hope to have <laughs> against uh, China and uh, and North Korea at least for a time. So the the scenarios we are planning against are are designed for this kind of large scale high intensity relatively short conflict um, where the maximum amount of force structure is needed in a you know short period of time, which is good if you want to drive up your force structure. Requirements, um, but it's not really good if you want to figure out how you can sustain a confrontation that might take years and have just episodic uh, improve increases in intensity and, and reductions in intensity. And I think you know clearly what China and Russia are showing us is that 
they're prepared and would prefer that kind of conflict, that kind of gray zone to, you know, periodically going up into some kind of, you know, armed uh, exchange of fire, but then dropping back down into some gray zone confrontation afterwards. Um, and uh, the, the, the force that we have today is not designed for that because it's too expensive to maintain at that level of op tempo, if nothing else. Um, and also the, the maintenance requirements are such that we just probably can't keep the forces out there, even if we had the money uh, to sustain the kind of op tempo that Russia and China can impose on us because they're the home team, right? They can afford to scale up and scale down as, the, as, they, uh, see, as they see fit because they're close to home and they can, they can control that. Uh, we're always going to be reacting and we're always going to be doing it from 6,000 miles away. Uh, so, so the scenarios we're planning again seem to be driving us to a force structure that's designed for that high intensity short conflict where uh, everybody comes home after six months um, and we don't have to worry about rotating forces into a, a confrontation over time. Uh, but that's clearly where Russia and China are going. So we need to come up with different scenarios. And we think that the mosaic approach offers some tools to better adapt to that situation because it, this force structure has a larger number of smaller things that are less expensive to maintain. Uh, you can come up with ways to keep them forward using pre-positioning, you know, which is what Indopaycom's talking about, uh, or with you know, just being carried out there with other pieces of force structure. But yeah, we think the mosaic approach gives the adaptability to address this sort of uh, gray zone to low intensity or you know, armed conflict uh, type of event that seems to be where Russia and China are pushing. And, and Russia clearly is taking advantage of the situation in the Black Sea to you know, expand their, their control over the Sea of Azov, push that out into the Black Sea and get people to at least start you know, reacting to them as opposed to um, having to react to the, the West. Uh, briefly on Defender, because I want to go, um, you, you had a shipyards uh, conversation yeah. uh, as well. Uh, and I want to get to shipyard and shipyard capability, especially uh, if, if it's a prolonged uh, conflict. Uh, and I should uh, point out to our audience that uh, uh, Mark Gunzinger of uh, the Mitchell Institute and uh, Dr. Tom Carrico of CSIS will be joining us next week and talk a little bit about what happens in a more protracted uh, campaign uh, in, in the event a war takes uh, longer, and as Gonzo argues uh, in his new paper, right, it, you, that there are multiple theaters and opportunistic and if, if we don't have that force structure and capability, that, it, that it's problematic. Going back to the defender uh, issue, right, I mean, we don't know exactly what happened in this incident at the, at the time that we tape this. But what are some, some takeaways, right? I mean, because during the Cold War, the Russians would get very, very aggressive, uh, and we got aggressive also, right? I mean, what's the way to deal with this new aggressiveness that includes extremely unsafe uh, flybys, buzzing, a thumping of wartime patrol airplanes and the like? Uh, yes, I think, you know, we might have to go back to that Cold War playbook. You know, we back in the Cold War, we had the Ink-Sea Agreement, uh, which uh, managed incidents at sea. We had similar agreements for other uh, for other domains um, because there was an, it was anticipated that we were going to have encounters um, and we were going to have you know, unexpected events, or we were going to have to be able to push back on, on Soviet aggression. So I think we need to go back to that playbook today and be more aggressive in how we respond to these provocations, because it will only encourage them further if we don't respond. Um, and I think the West is now starting to realize that Russia is not going to be, uh, is not going to back down just because we're nice to them or because we uh, don't escalate. Um, they see the lack of escalation as probably a sign of weakness and, and will continue to push, um, particularly since we have to eventually 
eventually leave. We don't live there. The Ukrainians are living there. They're stuck with it. Um, and the Romanians are there stuck with it. So they're going to have to, um, you know, if, if we want to be able to show the Russians that we're going to be there to help these uh, allies and partners, then we might have to be more aggressive than we have been of late uh, in terms of pushing back against these, these uh, provocations. And, and very briefly, what's the kind of shipyard uh, capability yeah. we need, right? I mean, obviously, a big concern is whether or not we're, you know, I mean, right now, we don't have the, uh, the shipyard availability in order to turn uh, the fleet as quickly as we need to turn it. What's the kind of capability we need in the future? So what we're looking at is, I mean, so we need to grow the shipyard capacity. And a lot of that has to do with just getting the most out of the existing shipyards. Um, I think, you know, people have talked about building new shipyards, but I think our investment would probably be better served in making the, the public and private shipyards of today uh, more effective by improving their infrastructure, uh, making it newer, uh, making it more uh, more capable. Um, and you know, one path to doing that is there's this shipyard infrastructure optimization plan that the Shipyard Act would fund. Um, and then as part of that, we're going to have to offload some of that maintenance work to the private shipyards because those public shipyards will now be uh, you know, getting upgraded. They're not going to be available to the same degree they were in the past. So we need to put money into the private shipyards that are going to pick up that load as part of the contracting effort to give them that work. Um, that'll improve our capacity on the private side. Um, and then we could also look at ways to uh, improve the, the infrastructure in private shipyards that handle non-nuclear ships that do the surface ships and amphibious ships of today um, with grants that are associated with large-scale contracts for ship repair jobs. And, and the Navy's moving in the direction of trying to contract multiple ships at a time. The Navy should also be looking at uh, providing the shipyards, the infrastructure capital investment, along with those maintenance uh, availabilities so that the shipyards can make their capital improvements to handle those availabilities better. And that combination of actions will help us grow the capacity of the shipyards by modernizing them. Um, and then when the shipyard in, uh, the public shipyard uh, improvements are completed, you know, we'll end up with a public and private shipyard capacity that's much greater than today uh, by virtue of, of having uh, invested in both of them. And I should point out to our audience that uh, you had a, a panel uh, today uh, with uh, Mike Gallagher, as well as uh, the ranking member of the Sea Power Committee, uh, uh, Congressman Whitman from uh, Virginia. Uh, Correct. Brian, thank you so very much. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks a lot. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks, Bob. It was great. It was great talking to you. Appreciate it. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.